Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Church. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Local Church. Years ago, local church pastor, a man named Jack Hayford, used an illustration I've never forgotten. He imagined a U.S. soldier drunk and disorderly on the streets of Manila in the Philippines. Soldiers loud and abusive, two U.S. military police show up in a Jeep. Soldier, they ask, where are you stationed? And the soldier says, haven't you heard the U.S. Army is global? I don't have to be stationed anywhere in particular to be a member of the global fighting force. Of course, the MPs aren't buying that. Who's your commanding officer, they demand. And he says, I'm directly accountable to my commander-in-chief, the President of the United States. Now, said Hayford, that serviceman would soon find himself under arrest. But, said Hayford, this is precisely how some Christians think as they function. They say, I only submit to Jesus and not to a local fellowship. But, of course, that's a deception. Yes, Jesus is the head of the church. But we must also be stationed somewhere and accountable somewhere. And that means the local church. So let's begin by noticing that all New Testament letters and books are written to local churches. Even while the New Testament is read by the global church, yet it's applied to the local church and her communal life. So let's review the kind of material we find in the New Testament. We should remember that New Testament books were not published through a publishing agent and then released to the wider public. Instead, these books were personal books written to a local group of believers. And while the global church now reads these books, the only proper application of the New Testament is in the context of a local church. Well, a good example might be the book of Galatians. The book begins by identifying the author, which is Paul, and the authority the author has to address his readers about matters of faith and practice. Paul is an apostle. He's chosen to be such by Jesus himself. And after having established his credentials, Paul then mentions recipients of his letter. You know, Galatians 1 verse 2, to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia was a Roman province, but Paul doesn't write to all the Christians in the province there, but to each local church that's found there. Now, in this study, we've noticed that while the word church in the singular can refer to all believers throughout the world, most often it's going to refer to a local fellowship of believers. So hence, the plural churches is more common in the New Testament than the singular church. And so the local church, which is the focus of most of the New Testament teaching. You know, sometimes the local church can be quite large as was the case with the very first church in the city of Jerusalem. That church met in a very large courtyard called Solomon's Portico. They very quickly grew to over 5,000. And sometimes a local church can be quite small, as was the case in Romans 16, 4-5, where Paul wants to greet the church that meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. But whether small or large, all these occurrences are a description of the local church that meets in a specific locality. It seems that God treats each church as a unique and special entity created by him. One need only consider how differently God treats the seven churches in Revelation 2-3. Each church seems to have its own character, its own triumphs and failures, 
Each church receives its own commendations and condemnations. So a quick survey of the New Testament is going to show us how important the local church is to the heart of God. Consider the books that are there. So let's begin with the four Gospels. Who received those books? To whom were they written? Well, many scholars believe that Matthew's Gospel was addressed to the church of Antioch in Syria and was intended to instruct new believers in the basics of the faith. That church was made up of many Jewish believers, and so Matthew is very careful to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. Mark was written to the church in Rome and was addressed with a Gentile audience in mind. Luke and Acts might be the exception. It seems to be addressed to an individual named Theophilus, who may have had the opportunity to disseminate that book widely in the Gentile world. So in Luke and Acts, we're not aware of a local church as the address E. But in the case of Acts, well, Acts is a description of one local church after another. And the fourth gospel, John, seems to have its audience in the church in Ephesus. Again, the original context is local, even while it's read globally. And when we come to the epistles, well, the pattern is all the more evident. You know, the Pauline epistles are written either to a local church or to the leaders of a local church. Hebrews is no doubt a sermon that was given in a local church and so on. And the last book, Revelation, was written to seven specific churches. Each one, each New Testament book speaks to a local congregation. And out of that situation comes a message for the global church. See, that's the nature of the New Testament. It's an instruction book or a manual directing a local congregation of believers in how to function. And that's why every local church leader needs to be familiar with his Bible, for it's his primary tool of directing the local church. One simply can't read large sections of the Bible unless they're understood as speaking to the local church. First and Second Corinthians, as well as First and Second Timothy and Titus, well, those are obvious examples. Whether dealing with the problems that local churches experience, as in First and Second Corinthians, or the principles under which local churches should be governed, as it is in the pastoral epistles, well, these books provide us with invaluable material which local churches must study in order to be faithful to Christ. They include everything from, you know, how to celebrate the Lord's table to how to deal with false teachers. But in all those instructions, two important features of the life of the local church become paramount. And we'll look at each one of those in turn. First, the local church must be a pillar of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, in this passage, we see a metaphor for the local church. It's the household of God. That's, that's very important. A metaphor we're more familiar with is the family of God. Well, those two metaphors are exactly the same. Paul wrote 1 Timothy in order to train family members how to behave. As we all know from our own experiences of being raised in a family and then perhaps later being parents of a family, you know, family life is sustained through rules of proper behavior. You know, for example, Johnny has to learn it's inappropriate to hit his sister. And he has to show up for mealtimes. That's not optional. Family rules establish behavior patterns. They set the stage for either functional or dysfunctional relationships within that family. 
And that's why, for instance, when the local church worships, those who lead in worship must be familiar with the documents of the New Testament. They teach us how we're to behave. We are to offer up prayers for all people. We're to give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. We're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to hear Scriptures being expounded. All these are instructions as to how we're to behave. But then Paul mentions something in this verse that might surprise us. He calls the local church not only the household of God, but a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, a pillar is a long column in an ancient building that holds up the roof. And a buttress, like a pillar, is a reinforcement upon which the entire structure rests. You know, at first, that image surprises us. We would have thought that the truth is the pillar and buttress of the church. I mean, after all, you know, the church exists because of the truth of God in Christ. But Paul puts it the other way around. See, the image we ought to see is one of ancient buildings from the first century. Many of those buildings had magnificent roof lines that established the beauty of the building. As far as you would look, you could see the roof. That's the image Paul wants us to see. Every local church is a pillar, and together each local church is holding up the truth of God in Christ for the surrounding community to see. If the pillar collapses, the roof collapses. If one pillar collapses, a certain part of the roof may fall to the ground. So there's the mission of the church. The church is called primarily to hold up the truth of God in Christ for the world to see. We might put it in a number of ways. You know, the church's function is to carry out the Great Commission. Or each church must see the priority of reaching out to the lost in its community. Each local church shares a sacred mission with other local churches all around the earth. If a local church is not engaged in that business, the truth of God's work in Christ will be lost in a local environment. In other words, God has entrusted the proclamation of his truth in a local setting to each local church. If that pillar falls, then that locality will have no living witness of the gospel. Well, in history, that has happened. And when it's happened, it's left a community and a culture in spiritual darkness. What a tragedy. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to partnership in the work of the gospel. No single individual congregation or mission is enough to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus gathered followers to train and commission. Paul ventured throughout the Mediterranean with the news of Jesus Christ, but he didn't travel alone. He cultivated partnerships to do the great work. This month, we offer a resource called Companions for the Gospel. This laminated reference guide maps out Paul's missionary journey in Acts and highlights the men and women who work together with Paul in mission. Companions for the Gospel is our free Bible resource gift to you this month. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy or to make a gift to the national or global efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Let's put it all together. If a local church doesn't behave appropriately, truth won't be proclaimed to the world. Improper behavior in a local church destroys the gospel witness. A lack of proper conduct 
has taken away their purpose and the truth of the gospel is obscured. Think of a local church giving all its energy to valid and legitimate concerns in their community, such as, you know, caring for the poor, and all the while they're neglecting the call of holding up the truth of the gospel to the world. That, according to 1 Timothy, is inappropriate conduct. It's like Johnny hitting his sister. It simply can't be tolerated in the family of God. It breaks all the rules. So the activity level, the strength of certain programs, or the popularity of personalities, even the patterns of growth or decline, are not the test of the faithful church. Rather, submission to the conduct that our Savior demands of us, that's the test, and it's a non-negotiable. Now, second, the local church is also the body of Christ. Like the first instruction, the second also deals with expected behavior. But while the first image tends to be a more macro perspective, the second image is a micro one. You see the metaphor body of Christ. You know, it's sometimes used to speak of the global church. In that sense, the metaphor speaks of the relationship the universal church has to her Lord. But in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the image of the body of Christ to show us that just as an ear, an eye, can't operate independently, Neither can individual members of a local church function without reliance upon each other. God intends that individual members of a local church function in community, that we need to rely on each other. And so in his sovereign wisdom, God appoints the gifts and roles individual members play according to his eternal designs. He assigns spiritual gifts to each individual member. He expects us to use them. You know, this is the expected behavior in the family of God. Now, that implies, of course, that every single member will find their useful place within that church. They'll be involved. They'll volunteer. They'll roll up their sleeves and they'll work. They'll conclude that as they become aware of the unique gifts the Spirit has given them, that that gift indicates the assignment that God has for them within the church. You know, since Christ is the head of the body, he determines how each member of the body will be used. Individual members then come to realize that the church is not theirs to design as they determine. It's clear that Christ functions as the leader of the church, and every member is, by the work of the Spirit, baptized into the body. And so the local church begins to do the very work that Christ would do if he were here. Since no one individual has all the gifts, each is required to rely on others. And the application is simple. Some will have the gift of evangelism and some the gift of discipling believers. Other the gifts of administration or helps or prophecy and so forth. Each is done to strengthen the body. So we come to a conclusion that the local church is not simply a human organization. It is, in contrast, a divine organization. It's uniquely designed by Christ, its mission, its function. Even its organization is of supernatural origin. You know, once we realize that, we begin to see that the local church is the only organization on earth whose existence defies all human explanations. So let's make application, shall we? It now should be apparent that the global church is simply the sum total of local churches. No one can claim membership to the global church without being enfolded into the local church. All believers in Christ find their home and fellowship in a local church. No one will call God his father without calling a local assembly of believers their brothers and sisters. 
1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, the biblical doctrine of adoption is closely related to this. Indeed, the designation brother, sister, that indicates that in Christ, we've been made a part of a family that carries with it the rich relationship about which we've been speaking. And yet today, I note there's a crisis. More and more supposed Christians are weakening and not strengthening their commitment to their local church. I know. You know, when a local church no longer knows how to behave under the instruction of Christ, it does have a problem. And furthermore, rather than holding to a faith that is one holy, universal, and apostolic, there is among some local churches a new kind of faith emerging. It's splintered from the one historic faith. It's personally designed, seeker-driven but not with an understanding of the one true God. It's individualistic, meant to meet individual needs, and thus makes human needs the focus and not the glory of God. Now, why is that? Well, it's so for several reasons. First, there are a number of professed believers who are in a different local church every Sunday. I mean, each week, they make up their mind where they're going to worship that week. You know, decisions are often made, you know, based upon the strength of the music or the preaching or some church program that interests them. That, of course, leads to an entrenched consumerism in which the person attending a local church evaluates that church on the basis of criteria they deem important. Is it meeting my needs? And hence, a new behavior pattern develops in the family. It's fed by self-fulfillment rather than Christ's direction. You know, church leaders are sometimes responsible for that. Many have led the way by designing programs designed to focus on the consumer. Gone is the idea of the church responding to apostolic instruction. It's replaced by a local church responding to market demands. You know, in this, the church becomes less and less the body of Christ and less and less a pillar and buttress of truth and more and more a responsive organization seeking to grow by responding to consumer demands and listening to market trends. You know, added to this problem is the problem of church switching. And please don't hear me condemning all church switching. Church switching can be the result of painful experiences, false teaching, other legitimate reasons. In such cases, a believer will weep in pain over such an experience it feels to them like they're compelled to leave their church. But faithful believers, if they're faithful, often compare such an experience almost as a divorce. But, you know, all too often in our day, church switching is a result of a low view of sacrificial love or discipleship, the value of community. Love for brothers and sisters is forgotten. Utilizing one's gifts, recognizing one's reliance on the local family of believers has never occurred to them. You know, its place is the exalting of self onto the throne of life in which everything, including the church, is called to bow and pay homage. And so following Jesus is individualized and has few practical or biblical applications. What's often not realized is that all that is left is a human organization and the body of Christ is missing. You know, another reason for weakness in a local church is the growing number of professing Christians who no longer attend any local church at all. And for some in this category, the idea of belonging to the global church is enough. They see no need for weekly meetings, which would include accountability and teaching and fellowship and corporate prayer 
and the proclamation of the gospel to the world. Others have simply not worked out a reason why they're not attending. The fact they still claim to believe while they don't belong to a local church. And all of this is left unexamined. Even while Hebrews 10 verse 25 warns us not to neglect the habit of meeting together, that warning is left entirely unheeded. And so we've become accustomed to talking about people as if they are Christian while they have no connection to any local church at all. And so we develop a theology in which the global church remains, at least in some theory, but the local church is absent. We're fighting today for the local church, for a renewed commitment to it. We're fighting to help followers of Jesus remember that Jesus said he would build his church. And furthermore, Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church. How is it even possible that there are those who claim to love Christ and do not love what Christ loves, his church. And furthermore, Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ gave himself up for the church. That is, Christ died so that a church would be not only possible, but realized. It was always Christ's intention to, out of all the nations of the human family, to create a holy nation called the church. So let's get back to where I started. I said when I began that using the illustration of a U.S. serviceman, that he could not say he belonged to the U.S. Army if he wasn't stationed somewhere local. Is it possible to be a follower of Jesus and not be bound to the life of Jesus in the fellowship of a local church? I say with biblical authority, it is not possible to be divorced from the local church and not to be ruptured from the life of Christ. Thanks for your message, John. Quick question. Do you think I can function as a Christian, as a believer, outside of the church? Yeah, Ben, I want to say this very clearly. You will never function as a faithful believer, faithful to Christ, outside of a local church. The Bible simply makes it plain. Uh, You can't do it, and so stop trying. Um, you know, what happens, I find, that when people no longer are a part of a church, they, they construct a form of faithfulness that's based on their own desires, and uh, ever so slightly, and then it becomes ever larger, that they drift from what Christ has demanded. It always happens. We are required to be a part of a local church. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Focus Month. Over the last number of years, God has graciously presented opportunities for this ministry to network with global partners that share our values and intent. Currently, our partnerships extend to the United Kingdom, Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean. New Bible teaching tools, devotionals, and booklets are being translated now into 14 languages and growing and we continue to work with international partners to train pastoral leaders to effectively teach the Bible. We're so grateful and privileged God has opened doors for international ministry partnerships. Your financial support makes it all possible. To find out how you can send pastors to the Bible teaching conferences or support our international partnerships, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.